series today on a cold and snowy day, but we're going to start a brand new series, uh, and there are some invitations actually in the hallway that you can use to invite uh, your friends. We're talking about a beautiful mind, uh, and we'll do this for the next three weeks, a beautiful mind, why what you think matters to God. And um, the way that the way that God addresses the subject of the mind is quite interesting when you read the scripture. Uh, there's a lot in the scripture to to ponder and to think about, uh, pun intended, uh, about the mind. And it really is a beautiful mind that God has created. But I have a question for you today. You know, we have this beautiful screen in the back here. And if we had the technology, who knows, maybe someday we'll find a way to do this. But if I could, if I could run you up to that, that projector booth up there and put little probes on, your, on each side of your head, you know, positive, negative probes, and, and then and you'd kind of sit up there in the booth and we would be able to see, you know, the rest of the congregation would be able to see everything that you thought about since the moment that you got up today, you know, live on the screen with audio and video and everything, would you be okay with that? Would that be all right with you? Would you be embarrassed or would you be, no, 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 I don't want to do that? I mean, I don't think I've met one person who would take that challenge because the truth is there are things that go on upstairs here uh, that, you know, we don't want other, they're not for public consumption, A, but sometimes they're just flat out just not good things that are, that are cooking around inside of our minds. And oftentimes, there can be a lot of turmoil and a lot of trouble up there uh, in the mind, and no one really knows what's going on except the person who's experiencing it. Um, but God created our minds to be beautiful, and they're, they're quite... Um, I'll use the word powerful in a careful way. Even if we, if we survey scripture, we see that there's something about the way that we think and what goes on in the mind that even transcends the physical world. Uh, if you look in, in Luke chapter 16, for example, a famous story that we have of, uh, of uh, the afterlife and uh, the rich man and Lazarus. You, you know the story of the, the man whose his name is Lazarus, uh, and he's, he's this beggar, and he's, he's begging for money from this other fellow, uh, and he never helps him, and he's, uh, you know, the, the rich man. And then there's something that goes on in the afterlife, and there's a conversation that goes on, and you see the rich man is alive and Lazarus is alive, but they're in two very, very different places. And yet there's a conversation and they seem to remember the, the, the people in this story. They remember the past. Uh, the rich man wants to warn his brothers and he actually wants Lazarus to communicate somehow with his brothers and repent from their, their ways but they seem to have their thoughts in capacity, and yet their bodies are in the ground. Uh, their brains are, you know, no longer functioning, and yet there's something that transcends that, even in the way that we think. Uh, so our minds are pretty powerful things, uh, and there's a component. I don't know if people can categorize it at all, but there's something very spiritual about the mind. You know, a lot of scholars say, well, the soul is the intellect and the emotions and the will. 
But is that just based on whether your brain is alive or not? Apparently not, only. When you look into the scripture, there's something uh, very deep about the mind. And so we want to address this for the next uh, three weeks. And I want to talk about the foundational question today uh, of identity, of identity. And I want you to ask yourself a, a question, three simple words, who am I? You don't have to answer it out loud or anything, but ask it in your mind, who am I? And I would submit to you that this is one of the foundational questions of life that you need to have an answer to that question. If your answer, and depending on your answer, is kind of how you're going to live your life. So some of you, you might answer the question by your profession. You might say, well, I'm a salesman or I'm a whatever, I'm a mechanic, or I'm a banker, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a whatever. You might answer it that way. Well, what happens if you lose your job? Do you cease to become that? Is your identity in that and that alone? Uh, some of you might address it by where you were born. You know, you might say, I'm a Canadian, or I'm an American, or I'm an African, or I'm a whatever. All right, well, you know, is that, is that where you base your identity in? Well, what if you live somewhere else? Does your identity somehow change? Uh, some of you might base it on the role that you have in your family. I'm a husband, a father, a son, a daughter, or whatever. Well, what happens when that role changes? What happens if, you know, your, 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 your marriage breaks up? What happens if, you know, your, your loved ones pass away? Does your identity change? Uh, I used to work for for a pastor who's a missionary now. Many of you know him, Don Mann. And I remember Don's uh, story. And uh, he, as a, as a young adult um, in Bible college, had both of his parents killed instantly in a head-on car crash. And he tells the story of how his the Bible college president or whatever called him into his office and told him that his parents were killed, instantly killed. Uh, by a transport truck, I believe. And, and, and I love the way he tells the story because he says, there were two things that went through my mind at that moment. Uh, if my salvation, my walk with God is based on, on that of my parents, then I just lost it. And if my call to ministry is based on that of my parents, then I just lost that too. And of course, he continued on with his call to ministry and, and all of that and was a, was a very influential pastor here in the city of Montreal and now uh, around the world through missions and all of that. But that's a question of identity. And you need to be able to answer that question because if depending on your answer, it's going to be how you live your life. There's a narrative that's always playing in that mind of yours telling you who you are. And when you have that question answered, you're going to see that your life is going to take various kinds of directions. And we see that in the scripture, this is something that's addressed quite firmly. And, and we see in the scripture often where the identity of people can be challenged and put into question. Um, there's an example in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. I think I have it. Oh, it's already on the screen. Uh, it, the book of Daniel is 6th century B.C. And you have the, the Babylonians coming in and, and, and taking Jerusalem. And they sack and burn the temple. And they take a bunch of Jews captive hundreds of miles away to Babylon. 
And there's uh, some of them that we know from the scripture, uh, and the book of Daniel uh, addresses this. Uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their names, and they're taken. I had a little picture of a fresco there. They're taken off to Babylon. And when you start to read the book of Daniel, which is an amazing read, a very exciting read, uh, when you read the book of Daniel, only 12 chapters long, you'll see that there's an attack on these, these guys and their identity. And the Babylonian leadership wants to transform the, a, a group of young Jewish men into kind of super soldiers and intellects for Babylon. And what they do is very intelligent. They, they change their names. If you'll go to the, to the next slide. So this is what those names meant in, uh, in, in their language. Uh, uh, so Daniel was God is my judge, you know, and Hananiah, Jehovah is gracious, and Mishael, who is like God, and Azariah, uh, Jehovah is my helper. These were their names, and this, this kind of was a bit of their identity was in their names. In that culture, you named a person, and that was very significant. Well, look what the Babylonian leadership does to them. These are the names that we seem to know them by, you know, uh, we don't know Belteshazzar that, that much. We still seem to use the word Daniel in church circles, but uh, Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these are the names that we know. Well, those are all Babylonian names. Like, and those names meant something, you know, keeper of the treasure of Baal and uh, command of the moon god and the goddess Shak and the fire god. And the idea was change their names and you can change their identity. And the story of Daniel, it very much has to do with how these boys refused to, to comply to Babylonian uh, worship and to, in many ways, Babylonian culture. And Daniel rose to prominence in, in Babylon because of his refusal uh, to, to compromise who he was. And what his identity was, he refused to do that. And it's a powerful, powerful example. It's only 12 chapters long uh, in the book of Daniel. In the New Testament, we can see the same thing in multiple places. Probably the most, the most powerful uh, is in the story of Jesus and the temptations of Jesus that he faces in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And uh, you, you see that the strategy of the tempter in that, in that story is to go after the identity of Jesus. If you look at it really slowly, you will see this is what he's going after. Um, you, you know, the temptation narrative and you have Jesus uh, hungry, 40 days of fasting, probably no water either. Like, you could die doing that, all right? That's a month and a half of fasting, and he's out there in extreme conditions. Yes, he's God, but yes, he's also human. And you've got him in a very vulnerable situation, and what does the tempter do? He comes up to him and he says, well, if you are the son of God, why don't you tell this stone to become bread? And you're able to do that. If you're the son of God, this is a very, very clever temptation uh, because, I mean, Jesus could have instantly done that and instantly fed himself, but he does not give in to it. But clearly it's an attack on his what on his identity. 
He's exhausted. The tempter brings him to the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down? Because doesn't the psalm say that he will command his angels to guard you and to pick you up? Well, if you're the son of God, if that's who you are, why don't you jump? This is a very powerful temptation, a very clever temptation. Jesus doesn't give in. And then the tempter takes him to a high mountain where he can see all of the, the, the worldly power and the worldly kingdoms that really the, the tempter himself is in charge of. And their splendor and kind of the glory of the, you know, the Roman Empire and the power and the prestige and the, and the, the, the gold and all of this stuff. And he says, all this I will give you. Remember, Jesus is completely laid bare there. No food, no water. Very physically, emotionally, completely worn out, completely drained. All this I will give you. All this authority, all this comfort, all this prestige, all this power. But all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Well, this is an attack on his identity. If he bows down and worships him, he's forfeiting his identity. And this is what's going on, and uh, I can tell you that if you don't have that question settled as to who you are, and the answer isn't uh, uh, solid, you're going to experience a lot of difficulty, a lot of, uh, a lot of frustration. Uh, so I want to, to address this uh, by using a passage that's often not used for this, actually, and it's from John chapter 1. Um, the passage itself is in verse 13, but I'm going to have the whole, the whole chunk read just to give you context, and uh, I'll ask Joseph if he would come up and read it. I put the whole thing on the screen for you. It's 13 verses long, okay, so just, just relax and enjoy, uh, but I want you to, to get an idea of the context until you get to verse 13. So Joseph, you can go ahead and read that for us. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, John 1, 1 to 13. I'm reading from a new international version. Uh, the yeah, go ahead. Uh, the title is actually, title of the passage is Word Became Flesh. Yeah. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made, n nothing was made that, has, that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Here is the reading. Thank you, Joseph. You just put it on the mic stand. <laughs> 
All right, so 13 verses, and it's, it's, a, it's a good chunk of scripture there, but I want you to see the underlined part. Um, who were born not of, in that translation, uh, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. And I want to give you three kinds of identity crises uh, that we have that you can see and that you can infer uh, from this verse. The first one is when we base it on our ethnicity, okay? In that translation, natural descent. Uh, in other translations, on bloods. Uh, not born not of bloods in some translations or of natural descent. What does that mean? Well, the word in the language of the New Testament is talking about ethnicity, talking about your ethnic background, essentially. Um, and when people do this, they base who they are on that on that ethnicity question. So the person says, well, I'm white. You know, that's who I am. Or I'm African. Or I'm native. Or I'm Asian. And, and this is who I am. Uh, or they may base it on, their, on the, the way that they look physically. You know, uh, you know, I'm large. Or I'm small. Or I'm heavy. Or I'm light. Or I'm, you know. And some people, if they're, they're born with some sort of uh, uh, infirmity... They'll, they'll base who they are on that particular uh, uh, natural descent, on their bloods. Some people do it on uh, the place that they were born. And they may be born in such and such a country. And so because they're born in that place, that makes them more special than someone else who's born in another place. And all these ideas of identity, uh, they may base it on the circumstances of how that they were born. Uh, and that can get really complicated, especially if, you know, you're, you're, you're coming from a blended family situation. I know our daughter, who's, who's 14 now, uh, in elementary school and in high school, I mean, many of the kids have one, two, and three dads, and one, two, and three moms, and you ask them questions about who they are, and they're all confused. They're not sure, you know, because the, the question is all messed up. Because the, the, if they're basing it on natural descent, on bloods, on ethnicity, then it can, run, it can run the person into a sense of uncertainty as to who they are. What does the Bible have to say about this? Interesting, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, You are all sons of God or daughters of God, obviously, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that means a person's made a commitment to Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. This is ethnicity. There is neither slave nor free. This is the circumstances how a person was born. There is neither male nor female. This is gender. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, this is your identity, you're born of God, you're not born of natural descent. It doesn't mean that that doesn't have an effect on your life, it means that the foundational question of identity cannot be in that, because it isn't a certainty, it isn't something that, that is going to take you uh, into, into a path of, you know, of confidence and of standing and of and of eternal life quite frankly because you're always it's always going to shift around and you have to be able to say no I am a child of God first and foremost so it doesn't matter the circumstances it doesn't matter the ethnicity it doesn't matter the gender I am a child of God 
first and foremost. That is the foundational question uh, of identity for that part of the passage. Another identity crisis uh, that we can have is when we base it on uh, uh, worldly values or in some translations, human decision or the will of the flesh. Uh, again, in John 1.13, you're not born of that, you're born of God. And this is the idea that, well, uh, it, it was a human decision. You're born of uh, the will of the flesh. The word in the Greek there uh, finds its way into the New Testament as meaning, well, the basic values of the world, the basic system of the world. The flesh is used as this kind of part of humanity that's opposed to God. So you're, you're born because, you know, your parents decided to have you pure and simple. You're a product of biology. You're a product of time and chance. Uh, you are what's said about you. You're born of the flesh. You're born of the ideas of the world, and that's it, and that's all. Well, John says, no, you're not born of the flesh. You're born of God. This is what your identity has to be in. And you, you can see this even in young people as their worldview develops and as they believe things uh, that the culture may say about them or that the world says, you see that, well, that could change their life in, in many times uh, a bad way. Um, you all know that the uh, New England Patriots won the Super Bowl, yes, if you follow American football. So you all know that my predictive powers of prophecy only last to about halftime or the middle of the third quarter of the football game, right? So, so this man on the screen, uh, who's the quarterback uh, of, the, of the, the New England Patriots, Tom Brady, uh, has now uh, completed successfully the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, 51 Super Bowls. No one's ever come back from the deficit that his team was in. No one's ever taken a Super Bowl into overtime. He did. It's the greatest comeback in, in Super Bowl history. Uh, and, of course, I was there writhing on the couch uh, you know, watching the whole thing unfold because, uh, you know, I made this false prediction. Well, there's some interesting lessons that we can learn uh, from this fellow Tom Brady, who I don't believe he's a Christ follower at all. Uh, but there were a number of things that were said about him uh, when Tom Brady uh, was drafted into the NFL. I have a, uh, a friend in Pittsburgh uh, who, who's with City Reach Network over there, and uh, he grew up with Dan Marino, uh, who's also a very famous quarterback, and he sent me uh, the scouting report on Tom Brady uh, this week. Listen to this report on Tom Brady from the year 2000 when he was drafted. So here are the positives that they said about Tom Brady. Uh, good height to see the field, very poised and composed, smart and alert, can read coverages, if you know anything about football, good accuracy and touch, uh, produces in big spots and in big games, has some Brian Grease in him, he's a famous quarterback, and he's a gamer. Generally plays within himself, team leader. That sounds really good, you know. It sounds... Here are the negatives. Poor build, very skinny, narrow, looks like a rail at 211 pounds. Looks a little frail and lacks great physical stature and strength. Lacks mobility and ability to avoid the rush. Lacks a really strong arm, can't drive the ball down the field, <laughs> does not throw a really tight spiral, uh, system type player who can get exposed if he must ad-lib and do things on his own, 
gets knocked down easily. Here's the conclusion. Here's the summary that they said about Tom Brady. It is not what you are looking for in terms of physical structure, strength, arm strength, and mobility. But he has the intangibles and production and showed great uh, Brian Grease-like improvement as a senior. Could make it in the right system, but will not be for everyone. Another uh, head coach of the, the San Francisco 49ers and the Detroit Lions said this on Tom Brady. You saw this tall, gangly-looking kid, looked like he'd never seen a weight room, ran a 5-2-something, which is really slow, one of the slowest quarterbacks in the combine. <laughs> Drafted 199th in the sixth round of the draft in the year 2000. Now considered if not the greatest quarterback of all time, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, probably doesn't care much about the scouting report. <laughs> probably doesn't care uh, what people uh, think about him at this point because of the accolades that he's now received. And not a, probably not a believer at all by any stretch of the imagination, but did not go by what was said about him. It did not go by, uh, if you put it in Christian terms, the will of the flesh and understood something about himself and his own identity as a person that's taken him uh, this far into, you know, football history. Uh, another example that I found uh, from the sports world, you'll have to put up with, with me in sports, okay, um, is from this gentleman here. And this is a this is a, happens to be a believer, a very strong believer. He's a, a baseball pitcher by the name of R. A. Dickey, and he's a bit of a strange uh, fellow in the sports world because he has the ability to throw a baseball with no spin, uh, and this is the pitch that he became famous for. Uh, a number of years ago, he won baseball's highest honor. Uh, for a pitcher, first time in the history of the game that someone who could throw a ball with no spin won that honor as a, as a baseball pitcher. And I was quite fascinated to hear him tell his story uh, and his background and his testimony because it relates so much to the idea of identity. And he became a household name in the sports world a number of years ago because of that story uh, across the entire sports world. And he, for the first time, began to share uh, his testimony as to what his life was like. And this is a, a man who, as a, as a child, as a young boy, uh, was sexually abused multiple times by a female babysitter and then was abused violently by a, an unknown male and kept this all secret and, and hidden uh, for years and years and years and tried to find a sense of identity through sport and through baseball and um, and became a, uh, you know wanted to become a professional baseball player and uh, it, it's quite a story because when he was drafted uh, by at that time the Texas Rangers organization in the US they were going to sign him to a contract of almost a million dollars which is pretty good for a young man and uh, the story goes that the owners of the, the baseball franchise looked at the cover of the Sports Illustrated magazine with his picture on it, and they said, there's something weird about that guy. There's something weird about the way he's holding his arm. We're not signing any contract until we x-ray that arm. We want to make sure that he's not damaged goods. And so they x-rayed his arm, and they found out that he's missing a particular ligament in his arm. 
And as soon as they found that out, they said, we're not signing you for all that money. We'll sign you for a mere pittance of that money because you are damaged goods. And, and so we are not going to give you, you know, $800,000. We'll give you $75,000 and that's it. And the, the, his career was just plodding around and back and forth and all of this never could get it off the ground and a suicide attempt and all this kind of stuff until he uh, found Christ and found this strange pitch uh, that he could throw with no spin and became very, very good at it and uh, shares his story in a, in a best-selling book and all of this. And I want you to get a feel for it. There's a clip that I have, just a 90-second clip of an interview. Go ahead. My parents divorced early when I was seven years old or so. And, and so when I would, I would often bounce from place to place. Yeah, did you hear what he said about his identity, right? I found a great quote from him. He says, in an unhealthy way, I found a lot of validity in having always been a very good athlete, a very good baseball player in his case. And I've since grown out of that place into a different perspective and learned how to live differently, thankfully, where baseball is certainly something that's very important to me. It's not who I am, identity. It's not who I am, though. It's just what I do. When you place your identity in the will of the flesh, it can lead to bad, bad uh, results. And this is a fellow who learned it and learned it the hard way. In the scripture, we have a marvelous example uh, in the man Moses. And uh, there's a great text in Hebrews chapter 11, the famous faith chapter. And it says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This is not who I am, effectively. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather, to, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, which he could have had easily in Egypt. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So the will of the flesh would have told him, you are the son of Pharaoh's daughter, this is who you are. 
But he says, no, this is not who I am. I am first and foremost a child of God. That's when you do it, uh, when you make the mistake of the will of the flesh, it can run into, into trouble. And the last one, uh, the last identity crisis, when we base our identity on the will of, I, I would say, one dominant figure, uh, the scripture says a husband's will or the will of man. In some translations, it's clearly referring to the will of the, of the father. This is a very uh, uh, male-dominated culture that's being uh, addressed here in John's gospel. Uh, but for today's application, it can be the, the dominant figure person in your life who, who this is who you base your identity on, a husband's will, the will of man, uh, the identity uh, based on one particular dominant figure uh, in a person's life. And this is a, is, a, is a false idea. This can lead you into big problems. There's an old joke, you know, that fathers used to use with their kids. Maybe some of you still use it. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world, right? Any of you ever use that with your kids, okay? That's funny, but, but in the, if, a, if a little kid bases their identity on on that one statement, wow, they're going to be on some pretty, some pretty shaky, shaky ground. Uh, for homework, I'd like you to, to look up this fellow on the left of the screen there. His name is David Meese. He's a tremendous modern-day example of this. Uh, some of you probably are too young to know who David Meese is. Uh, in the 80s and the 90s, he was very, very popular in Christian contemporary music. And uh, David Meese uh, uh, was born, I think, in the, in the 70s, and uh, he was a, a prodigy piano player and won competitions and was able to play like he was prodigy. And uh, the thing about him is that he grew up in a home where his father was a violent alcoholic, extremely violent alcoholic. And uh, he tells his, his story very, very vividly. Uh, you can see it on YouTube and on his, his website there, davidmeese.com. And uh, he's a very popular musician, extremely popular in the 80s in particular. And uh, he tells the story of what it was like to grow up it, it, you know, with his father being that way. And uh, one particular incident of violence that he discusses in his, in his testimony is when his father drove a vehicle through the house uh, into the house and broke the wall down and pulled a loaded gun out and pointed it at this boy, at his son, and said, you're worthless, and pulled the trigger. It is a powerful story, and he talks about how those words from that one dominant figure just just darkened his life for years and years and years because that's who he believed he was. Because that's what that, that's what that man said to him. Uh, it's a powerful story of forgiveness uh, and how he learned to, to cope with that and to forgive his, his father uh, for that, that transgression against him. I would, I would challenge you to take the time to, uh, to listen to his testimony and watch it. I think he has a video of it. And even the, the other fellow, uh, R.A. Dickey, I mean, really life-changing stuff. Um, and this is a man, again, modern example, who said, no, my identity is not in that. It's not in the will of the man. 
It's not a, a husband's will. It's not in what, you know, my father said or what he said to me or how he lived his life. It's in God first and foremost. I'm born of God. We have a great example in the scripture of a very young boy, uh, eight years old, King Josiah. And you can read about this in uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 34. Oh, I have it on the screen. Second Chronicles 34, and uh, it's King Josiah's kid becomes king at eight years old. Like you saw eight-year-olds here in the front uh, be, be, before we started today. And he, be, he takes the throne of Judah at eight years old. And you read about him, and you see his father was a nasty, nasty, ungodly leader. His grandfather is a nasty, nasty, ungodly leader. you got two of the most ungodly kings uh, in his background. And yet, for reasons that we don't know, he chooses to live by his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, David. And follow the ways of, of David, of, of the old King David who was, who was long gone. And you see some of the greatest reforms in the history of, of Judah and of Jerusalem made by this boy. Even at the age of 12, he starts, he starts dealing with all the idolatry. Uh, there's a story where, he, where they're, they're repairing the temple there in Jerusalem, and people find the, the, the books of Moses, and they go and they give them to Josiah, and they say, Josiah, we found this book, you know, in the rubble left over by the Babylonians. We found this book kind of thing. Uh, I don't know if I have my history right there, but <laughs> Babylonian pre-post, it doesn't matter. We found this book. And, and Josiah looks at it and, you know, he has people read the book of the law uh, in front of him and he, he, he gets very, very emotional. He says, well, we've got to change things around here. Look what God is saying, you know, and he institutes these amazing, amazing reforms uh, in the nation um, because he chose to. He chose to say, my identity is not in, you know, in his case, his, his, his immediate father or his grandfather. No, he said, no, my identity is in God first and foremost. And I'm going to do what God says because I am his child. He had a right sense of identity uh, even as a young boy. Amazing, amazing. And the scripture says of him, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is kind of his epitaph left behind for us to read. So we're in trouble. We have an identity crisis when we base it uh, on our bloods, as it were, our, eth our ethnicity, on the will of the flesh or on the will of man. But when we base it in God first and foremost, that's where freedom comes. That's where eternal life is lived. First uh, John uh, 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 chapter 3, verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13, As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So I don't know what's going on in your, in your own mind as you ask yourself the question, who am I? But would you find that identity and that purpose in God first and foremost? Why don't we stand and I'm just going to close in prayer.